0: Expert insight, clear analysis, strategy in action. Welcome to the CEO to CEO podcast, featuring the world's top CEOs. The podcast will welcome honest conversations meant to challenge traditional ways of thinking from fellow global industry leaders. This podcast will also explore the intricate world of M&A from the insider's perspective. M&A is a big deal one in which you can drive the future of your business, your industry, and even the trajectory of the marketplace. This podcast is hosted by Kevin Campbell, CEO of Sinity. Sinity is a global enterprise data solution provider specializing in data operations and data transformation. Kevin Campbell is a global champion in data and has served as the former group chief executive officer at Accenture and COO of Oscar Insurance Corporation. David Axon is a global strategist, consultant, keynote speaker, and author. Known as the CFO Whisperer, he has worked in strategy, finance, and technology for more than 35 years, advising CFOs and businesses in more than 50 countries across multiple industries. He has served as a global leader, driving global mergers, acquisitions, and divestitures at a number of organizations, including Bank of America, Accenture, and Hewlett-Packard. He was a co-founder and chief operating officer of the Hackett Group, led Accenture Strategies global finance thought leadership for nearly a decade and served as head of corporate planning at Bank of America.
1: Welcome to this week's CEO to CEO podcast. Today, we're excited to have on with us David Axon. David is what I like to call the CFO whisperer. Uh, He uh, has spent his life and his career working with CFOs. Um, He was at the Hackett Group in the original founding and was the COO for them for years. Uh, He also uh, spent time at Bank of America and also spent time with Accenture. Now um, in retirement or semi-retirement, he's pretty busy for a retired guy. Um, He uh, spends time counseling CFOs and CEOs about a wide variety of subjects, uh, including M&A. So we're pleased to have uh, David on, and David, welcome.
2: Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, David, how about if we start out with, you know, you spent a career counseling CFOs and, uh, and CEOs. When you get in a first meeting with them, um, what, do, what do you want to establish? What are you looking for? Are you looking for what are their priorities? What are their pain points? How do you get the discussion going?
2: Yeah, I think it's very easy to go in and ask, what are your pain points? But I've always taken a slightly different approach. I'm much more focused on what they're trying to accomplish. And that has two dimensions to it. I'm thinking that both from an enterprise standpoint and also personally as a CFO. You know, I think it's important to understand what a CFO's agenda is and how I or my organization can help furthering their personal agenda as well as their professional agenda, a mentor of mine a long, long time ago said if, if you can help your clients be successful both personally and professionally, you're in a really good situation. Uh, and that's what I always try to accomplish. So I'm really thinking about, you know, what are the CFO's goals? How do they measure success? And then what are they actually doing today to try and further their progress to those goals? And then you can get into a conversation about perhaps more negative stuff. What are the pain points? What are the challenges they're facing? But you're doing it in the context text of where they want to end up. And I always think that's a more constructive conversation to have, you know, in terms of building a relationship with the CFO, but also beginning to understand what their agenda is and, you know, how we can work together to help them further that.
1: That uh, seems like a really uh, good approach to try to figure it out because we all have personal objectives along with our company objectives that we're trying to work on. And I know, at least for me, and I'm sure for you, just getting them talking uh, in the beginning, you know, then it falls out. You know, we're living in strange times right now in the in the COVID era, uh, you know, moving to, you know, it's going to be a, a long recovery, I think. Economically, um, you know, the, the Atlanta Fed's now saying, you know, that we might have as much as a 33% GDP growth in uh, the third quarter, which I think will be a surprise to all of us if that turns out to be true. And be great. But when you're talking to uh, CFOs today, you know, are they are they more focused on cost cutting or growth or do they need some of both?
2: It's really a combination. You know, certainly when we uh, entered the downturn in March, the speed and velocity and the the magnitude of the decline really turns CFOs focus to cash and capital conservation. Uh, and actually, if you look at results that companies are reporting, they've done a pretty good job. Companies have done a pretty good job of managing their balance sheets through what has been a rather unprecedented period. Some of that has come through cost optimization. Clearly, managing your expense base is sort of you know, the number two or number three job behind the integrity of the financial statements of every CFO, But what I'm seeing is, and we're beginning to see this play out now, those companies that have done a successful job of managing their balance sheet are really in the best position to start to think about investing in growth, whether that's organic growth or increasingly we're seeing increased activity in the M&A space. So when I talk to CFOs about cost optimization, their agenda, the real question I'm asking is why? Is it to fuel growth? Is it to increase competitiveness? Is it to create a fund to be able to make acquisitions? Is it to return cash to shareholders? Because the reason why they're trying to do it helps you begin to understand how you should prioritize uh, different activities. But I've certainly seen, and I saw this in the uh, financial crisis 10 or 12 years ago, that CFOs have really done a very good job of husbanding cash and capital uh, to create some cushions, some flexibility, so that when growth does return, you know, if we see a 33% increase in the third quarter, you know, I think we suspect we'll see some companies start to look for opportunities in the marketplace. In fact, that's already happening.
1: Even at, the, <clears throat> at our company, um, the number of, just in the last month, the number of opportunities we've been presented uh, where people are saying, "Hey, this division is no longer strategic to us we're interested in talking to you is on the rise now david you you have a ton of m a experience. you were involved at Bank of america in uh in when they acquired uh, the boston banks uh, fleet and so on and uh, I know you were involved at h p in the uh the spin out uh there um so a lot of experience at that so when you're sitting talking to uh, CFOs about M&A, you know, what do you tell them is important to get right?
2: I think it's a portfolio conversation. You know, every growth strategy has a buy, build, partner, or potentially a divest component to it. You know, divesting businesses that are perhaps underperforming so you can invest in higher performing businesses, as well as making acquisitions or partnering. And I think when you're thinking about buying, it's what are you trying to buy? Are you buying revenue? buying products, buying intellectual property, buying customers, market access, because the discussion and the decision as to how much you're willing to pay will largely be driven by the elements that you're willing to purchase. And so CFOs are really focused on portfolio value. Are the sum of the parts in the business greater than the whole, which may create a divestiture opportunity? We're seeing that happening in a lot of different businesses at the moment, where there's consideration of spinning off parts that may have a standalone value that's significantly greater than the value when it's buried in part of the enterprise. And the same thing is happening in reverse when companies are looking at acquisition opportunities. You know, We've seen some valuations over the last six months that have been incredibly volatile. Well, volatility creates opportunity. A lot of people think volatility uh, volatility just creates fear. Uh, But there's a positive side to it, too, in terms of creating that opportunity. So I think it's really about understanding the overall portfolio value. Uh, One of the biggest changes I've seen in the CFO agenda over the last 20 years is going from being inward-looking and backward-looking to outward-looking and forward-looking. In most companies today, the CFO is the number one executive after the CEO. You listen to the earnings call of uh, almost every public company, and there are two people that are on every one, and it's the CEO and the CFO. The CEO is telling the strategic story, and the CFO is telling the financial story that supports the strategic story. So that combination, I think, is key. So when you're thinking about merger, acquisition, or divestiture, That partnership in the C-suite between the CEO and the CFO is crucial. You know, the CEO has an agenda that is driven by financial outcomes largely. And they're looking to their partners in the CFO office to create the capacity, to create the energy to be able to execute on that agenda.
1: Again, helping work with the CEO uh, is an important part of the CFO's role, right? And is there any particular advice you give uh, CFOs about, what they need to understand from their CEOs and how do they make sure that they work that relationship the best?
2: Yeah, I think one of the biggest changes I've seen is forward-looking capacity. So understanding what the CEO is looking to do, not just the next quarter. You know, CFOs mentally have always been attuned to the next quarter, mm-hmm. tend to be very short-sighted. You know, in the September, October, November timeframe, if they're on a calendar fiscal year, they maybe look out a full year. And maybe they do a, a rough set of five year financials that may be just a financial trending exercise. That's changing significantly. In looking at the portfolio of the business and understanding the trajectory of those businesses, not just in the near term, but in the medium and long term, the CFO is really looking at what those capital requirements are going to be, how much cash those businesses are going to generate. And what's the best use of the cash that's going to be generated? Is it paying down debt? Is it returning to shareholders? Is it reinvesting in the core business? Or is it making acquisitions to begin to expand the company's footprint? And therefore, that conversation about objectives and strategy, and that's a board-level conversation and an investor-level conversation, as well as just a CEO conversation, is really at the heart of what top-performing CFOs are doing today. A lot of the backward-looking accounting activity is A, being largely automated, and B, has been moved to shared services organizations or third-party outsource providers, and is largely under the responsibility of a corporate controller these days. And that's freeing up capacity for the CFO to take this more strategic, outward-looking role within the organization.
1: Let's uh, switch uh, for a minute and talk about one of my favorite subjects, uh, data. Uh, What... How important is uh, is data to the lifeblood of the
2: CFO? A CFO to data, that's always been job one. You know, ensuring the financial, uh, the integrity of the financial statements is job one for any CFO. If you don't do that right, you have no permission, you have no mandate to explain your footprint, and in some cases, you may even end up going to jail if you don't perform those responsibilities successfully. So CFOs are actually in a perfect position in many organizations to begin to understand the importance of data governance and data integrity. Now, initially, and when I started in finance 35 years ago, that was limited to a small subset of financial data that was in the chart of accounts, the trial balance, and the financial statements in the general ledger. But increasingly today, regulators, investors, board members, and management are looking at a much broader set of data. They're looking at operational data that is a precursor to what financial outcomes might look like. They're looking at market, competitor, and customer information to gain insight into behavior so they can begin to optimize resource allocation to take advantage of the opportunity. We're also getting new types of data that CFOs are being held accountable for. Most CFOs now have... now have to sign sustainability or carbon footprint statements as part of their compliance returns. So the CFO's purview over data has expanded significantly. The good news is high-performing CFOs understand the importance of data governance and data integrity. Now, it's a little bit of a challenge when you expand that footprint beyond the financial domain and in some organizations, you see some tension as a CFO tries to apply governance and standardization to data in marketing or engineering or sales organizations. But data governance today is now about managing not just the data within your own organization, but it's about managing data within the ecosystem that, within which you operate. A significant amounts of your data may reside in your supplier systems. And therefore, the ability to be able to govern that And ensure integrity and security of that data is at the forefront of every CFO's uh, mindset. You know, one of the things that came very clear to me when I was at Bank of America was the CFO focusing on a different type of risk than perhaps we had thought about before. We've always thought about, you know, financial risk, market price risk, exchange rate, interest rate. But what about reputational risk? And one of the biggest reputational risks we've seen over the last few years is the impact on a company's reputation of a data breach. Mm -hmm. The financial impact of that is dwarfed by any short-term loss. The reputational risk over the long term is huge. And therefore, for a CFO who's looking at their balance sheet and is looking at enterprise value and is trying to understand risks that may impact that in the future, the ability to effectively manage data both from a compliance, a security, and a strategic value standpoint is one of the hallmarks of success in today's world. And when I look at data, there are really three values that we have with data. There's the value to execute a transaction. Do I have the data to do a buy or a purchase transaction? But there's then the informational value of that data. You know, how much have I sold to this customer? How much have I bought from this supplier? But there's a newer dimension that's really emerged in the last two or three years, well, the last five years, is really the analytic value of that information. Now, we do a pretty good job today in managing the transaction value of data, you know, buying and selling things and making sure we account for them correctly. The information value, okay, but the multi-dimensionality that's increasingly important, we're pretty good in some areas like account and customer, we're less effective at bundle. Uh, If you're doing bundled services, we're less effective at channel profitability. The analytic value, I think we've barely scratched the surface. You know, with AI, machine learning, and cognitive, we're seeing a lot of new tools coming along. But we're still really in the pilot prototype experimentation stage. And relatively few organizations have got to the point where they're really unlocking the analytic value of the data they have available. And CFOs are part of that. They don't own it alone. It's a partnership. Uh, but from a data governance standpoint, we're seeing CFOs play a much broader and a much stronger and effective role in that space.
1: A very uh, talented CFO at one of our clients, uh, the team had come to him you know, twice now saying, hey, the project is delayed um, because of X, Y, and Z. And uh, he finally got the team, including the CIO and stuff in his office, and he said, Listen, when are you finally going to tell me your problem is data, right? And here's the new approach we're going to use to get data. Because all we're doing now is swapping flies, swatting flies, right? And they just keep coming in droves and we're not focused. But what I thought was great was that he was the one, not anybody else in the organization, that said, come on, you know, the answer is data and we got to get on top of how we're going to organize and structure our data we're going to have a problem it's so,
2: foundational to every enterprise today and you know we're still operating in a fragmented way in many organizations which is why you know the potential of technology to change that game is much richer today than it ever has been in the last 35 years i've been looking at this and therefore there's not really as many excuses today as there have been in the past if you're not able to harness the power of your data and govern and manage it effectively
1: david on in MA, we talked about it you know, I've been promoting data as an asset, just like anything else in, uh, in M&A, when you look at, you know, acquisitions. What's your experience been about data, both, uh, you know, things people have done well and maybe things people haven't done so well at looking at data in m and
2: Well, when I think of M&A, there are really six elements you need to get right if the deal is going to work. The first one is really initial candidate screening and identification. What is your portfolio of potential targets? One of my groups at Bank of America, when I was head of planning there, we actually had a portfolio of companies that we were tracking their performance every quarter as they announced results. And we had, uh, we had thresholds, targets, and trends that we were monitoring to see when those organizations may fall into the most attractive segment for potential MA. So rather than being in a reactive mode, We were on a continuous basis sucking data out of the market to really begin to understand the attractiveness of particular targets. Number two is really due diligence. You know, there's no excuse for not doing due diligence. There are limits to what you can try and accomplish. But with the the data that is now available in the marketplace and internally as you begin to execute due diligence, there should be no excuse. But one of the challenges we face is two companies will speak two different languages. Mm -hmm. And therefore, to be able to quickly harmonize your view becomes very important. uh, Number three is day one operation. Can we run this acquired or merged business on day one effectively? Number four is accounting control and compliance. And number five is synergy realisation. Well, all of those things are really fundamentally based upon your ability to get transparency and visibility to performance across the enterprise, which requires the harmonization of data. The final element is strategic value creation. Well, none of those six elements, candidate screening, due diligence, day one operation, accounting control and compliance, synergy realization, can succeed without data. So it's absolutely foundational. Now, it's a journey. The ability to exercise control when you're doing candidate screening is somewhat limited. Clearly, when you've bought the business and you're integrating it and you're trying to realize strategic value, you have a lot more levers that you can play with. But you really need a playbook that allows you to manage the data journey through those six steps if you're going to get value from M&A in today's world.
1: We've talked a lot about what CFOs do, what's important to them, uh, how they go about it. You know, what career advice do you give CFOs today, um, you know, when they're, uh, when, when, they're, when you talk to them? Like, what do you say you, based on all the probably 500 CFOs you've talked to just in the last week, no, uh, in the last couple <laughs> of years, what, what really is it that you tell them it makes the most successful CFOs?
2: There are a couple of elements that I'm emphasizing increasingly today. Uh, the first one is technology, which is the foundation. The most important is talent. And frankly, in the past, CFOs have not done as good a job as they might. You know, CFOs are numbers guys. We like numbers. We'd rather stay out a spreadsheet and talk to somebody. You know, so developing talent within our organization has always been a challenge. But as we go through this transformation around data, technology, and analytics, It's the combination of the technology and the people that really delivers the ultimate value. And when I talk to CFOs today, they recognize that. It's the ability to build a high-performing team that can evolve with the technology and data environment that's now available to us. And one of the things I advise all of my clients, CFOs and finance people, uh, is say, if you want to be successful in today's world, the job of... The finance organization starts when you deliver the report or the analysis. Now, for much of my career, when I hit send on that email with the PDF 400 page monthly management report, I said, Thank God, that's over with for another month. I can get back to doing some real work. Well, that was actually a very flawed mindset. Today, we can automate a lot of that basic stuff. Mm-hmm. Our job as finance is only as good as the decisions that result from the information, the insight, and the analytics that we provide. So if I do great analysis and no decisions result from it, have I really done a great job? And what I increasingly see CFOs being is almost a catalyst or a facilitator for the executive team and increasingly the board, to help them understand and interpret the information that's being made available to them, the analysis that's being made available to them, so they're in a much better position to take action and make decisions based upon that. We're pretty good at answering the what happened question. We're okay at why did it happen. The hardest question, but the most valuable one, is what do we do about it? And so for a CFO to add value, and it's a much more interesting job, by the way, You know, closing the books and doing the accounting statements is not the most exciting job in the world. I like to say that being in finance is the coolest job in the world today. Because of the data richness that we have available to us, our ability to tell stories that are fact-based on data that help people understand what's going on and equip them with the tools to make better decisions that help them both personally and professionally is at an all-time high. And the good news is, like Moore's Law, it's going to get better every year. So, as a finance professional coming in today, I think there's a wonderful opportunity to have a very different career than perhaps our predecessors.
1: Speaking of careers, David, you've had, by any dimension, a wildly successful career. You've been in big companies, you've been in startups, uh, and kind of consulting everywhere in between. What's the best career advice? We always like to ask people on this podcast, what's the best career advice you've ever gotten?
2: Take time to have some fun uh you know it, we can get wrapped up i was doing 200 plane flights a year for 10 straight years and uh uh i left something behind and i found out in the next 10 years i could actually be more productive and add more value and have a lot more fun along the way and that was absolutely key because i've seen a lot of people who get so wrapped up in their career it's the exclusion of all else and they either burn out or they suffer in their personal relationships or they, they're just not happy. And, you know, it, it's perhaps a, uh, not what you're looking for. But getting that balance right, I think, is fundamentally important. You know, I remember when I started in consulting, if you said you wanted to only spend, you know, three nights on the, uh, away from home and four nights with the client and work at home on the fifth day, I would have been fired on day one. You know, getting that balance right actually recharges your batteries and gives you a perspective to start to ask those difficult questions. Because when you've been doing the same thing every month, every quarter for 20 years as a finance professional, or a CFO, you have no frame of reference of what's going on in the rest of the world. So I think that's both liberating, it's exciting, it's refreshing, and it helps you perform to the maximum potential.
1: David, so how does somebody get a hold of you if they want to uh, tap in that big brain for some advice?
2: Very easy. David at davidaxon.com is my email address and davidaxon.com is my website. Uh, So find out there. My phone number's available there. Happy to talk to anybody, anytime. I love the coaching and counseling that is now a big part of my uh, semi-retirement role.
1: Well, David, thanks for joining us on uh, CEO to CEO podcast. I really appreciate your insights. And most importantly, I want to make sure we get you... uh, off to your next golf game. Getting that, <laughs> balance, getting that balance right is uh, is critical. So nice tune, in, everybody. tune in everybody next week for the next episode of CEO to CEO podcast. And thank you again, David.
0: Thank you for joining the CEO to CEO podcast. Join us next time as we uncover data strategies to support mergers, acquisitions, and divestitures with the world's top CEOs.